This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.08 and this is the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sherrod. So, first up this hour, the week saw the hottest global temperature ever recorded. We're going to look at what all of this means because according to data from... Well, numerous resources, but including the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction, the average global temperature reached 17.18 degrees Celsius on Tuesday. The previous record uh, of 16.92 degrees was set in August 2016. The EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service on Wednesday also tweeted that Monday's global temperature was a record in its data set. And experts have said that the unprecedented high temperatures were caused by a number of things, including global warming, uh, the resurgence of the El Nino phenomenon and the onset of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, so uh, 16 degrees sounds like something you might be in the lower end of your air conditioning uh, temperature. But actually, we have to think of it as a global average, right? And so the highs have been extraordinarily high. And we see it with the Northern Hemisphere in the last couple of months. Uh, And the impact on crops, on water, uh, and in fact, just the ability to do work. Can you imagine people live and work out in the sun? Uh, You know, we've had uh, reports of people dying, in fact. So, I mean, the ears way to look at this is that this is just the latest salvo being fired by the planet, right? Of saying, you need to you need to hear this, you need to understand it, that temperatures are going up. And I think um, you're right that these numbers, because they are coming into the Malaysian context, where again, 17 degrees, not that hot. Um, but if you take into account that this is the average, including the hottest place of something like 40, 50 degrees Celsius, and then the minus, you know, 30 or whatever that you might see in the Arctic or in the various poles, then I think you see something approximating why this is an issue. Uh, it's also something that can feel distant from us when we look at our weather right now or right this week, because it hasn't been necessarily that hot. But even in recent months, we have seen really deeply sweltering temperatures. We've seen people struggling with heat strokes. So it's clearly a global problem. Yeah, you know, I think for those who are climate change deniers, they often will say, well, you know, the Earth's not always been the single temperature has been, the global averages have gone up and down. Uh, we should, There should be no alarm when it comes to this. But what is true, Lynn, that, you know, we've seen reported day in, day out, in fact, are things that are dramatic changes to the global climate, including ice, uh, you know, sheets melting in the Antarctic, breaking off, Greenland losing extraordinary amounts of snow. And when you when you put that together with an understanding of where the planet likes to be in terms of temperature, this is, is in fact, quite worrying. So we're going to talk about essentially what this signals about climate change with Kennedy Michael, co-founder and communications coordinator for Gabungan Darurat Iklim Malaysia. We'd like to hear from you. Do you think that Malaysia is ready for climate change? Um, have we done enough? What can we do to prepare better? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Because friends matter. BFM 89.9. 
the business station. It is 5.12 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today about the fact that this week saw the hottest global temperature ever recorded. We are translating that into the Malaysian context by asking what this means for climate change and specifically our climate change preparedness. So let us know, do you think that Malaysia right now is ready for climate change? What can we do to prepare better? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now, we have Kennedy Michael, co-founder and communications coordinator at Gabungan Darurat Iklim Malaysia. Kennedy, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Um, Good evening, everyone. So data from the NCEP this week found that while uh, this is the hottest global temperature ever recorded with the global average reaching 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit or 17.18 degrees Celsius. Can you help us understand these numbers and how it compares to temperature trends over the past decades? So if you look at um, what was mentioned just now, uh, 16 degrees uh, or 17 degrees as a global average temperature, if it was local, it would be quite pleasant for us. It's the kind of temperature you'd get maybe in Cameron Highlands or Fraser's Hill or places like that. And it's it's quite pleasant. But this only represents the global average, which means you're taking lows and highs from all over the world uh, and then uh, finding a mean. Now, when we first started recording uh, temperatures in the 1800s, late 1880s or so, the global average temperature was only about 13.7 or 14 degrees. So you can see how this rise has... Uh, has gone really sharply uh, and commensurate with the rise uh, over the decades from the 20s all through to the 80s, uh, the number of weather-related incidences and phenomena, so we're talking about floods, droughts, forest fires, um, coral bleaching, uh, and then there was this period in the 80s where there was the hole in the ozone layer, um, and you can see that it's each, each 0.1 or point. 0.5% of global average temperature rise has a detrimental effect on the anthropocene or basically on human life. Kenny, I want to ask you, since you already mentioned coral bleaching, I think um, many of the phenomena that we see in the media is visible to human eyes and, you know, to human society. What is happening, say, for instance, deep in our oceans and other such uh, dynamics that we aren't aware of and doesn't get highlighted in the media? So we look at the, the phenomenon uh, El Nino La Nina. Those have become, over the last 100 years, uh, have become exacerbated. You know, it used to be kind of mild. In fact, uh, say two years ago, three years ago, uh, the phenomenon was, was rather mild. We had a lot of rain, but out in the ocean, it wasn't too bad. And again, the, the way we measure it is by incrementals, you know, 0.05 or 1 degrees. But all these temperature rises or changes in, in the oceans, uh, the oceans being the prime uh, mover of climate globally and also weather because of the ocean currents that travels the globe, uh, moving, moving heat sinks from one part of the globe to the other part of the globe and also being a, a huge carbon sink uh, when the temperature rises, and if it rises too drastically, it affects quite a number of, of thermodynamic systems that happens in the ocean. Uh, and then that affects the atmospheric uh, weather uh, in terms of uh, cloud formation, uh, precipitation, as well as wind factors 
and then you see that it, where it should rain in some places, it doesn't, and where it shouldn't rain in, in other places, it does, where it shouldn't snow, it snows, and where it should snow, it, it doesn't snow. And as you've mentioned earlier, it affects a lot of uh, different things in terms of productivity, in terms of food production, uh, in terms of uh, how people just live on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And this also affects uh, island nations with rising sea temperatures. So this is this is a lot of complexity distilled into you know a simple way of looking at things. And if we were to take the local context in Malaysia, we're now seeing a more active push towards renewable energy and reducing our carbon footprint. How much would a cut in Malaysia's emissions actually move the needle when it comes to solving the global issue of climate change? So. Um, so the, first of all, there's there's the issue of historical emissions uh, from the global north, uh, and so the big conversation that's happening on the global stage is about how the global north or Western countries or the industrialized countries uh, are the ones who put the most amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that has uh, impacted global climate, and they should be paying for it. So that's one conversation that's been happening uh, since since the cops began uh, for the last 20 years or, or more uh, and money was meant to be uh, given by the global north to the global south because all the resources were extracted from the global south uh, but that that commitment has so far just been on paper mostly for the most part now in terms of malaysia yes there is a big push towards renew renewable energy uh, but is it enough that's that's the question to ask, and then we look at we look at um, our own. I mean, our GDP is driven by fossil fuel. Uh, this this is something we have to come to terms with. Uh, that you know, uh, our oil production uh, and use is, is a major part of our GDP, and we also know that that one of the biggest drivers of climate change is the the extraction and use of uh, fossil fuels, right? So. Um, Every country uh, has a measure of, of what their emissions are. Um, we, we have uh, the NRECC uh, looking at our nationally determined contributions, our commitments to COP and how we're going to, to fill it. And a lot has been said by the, the new minister, Nick Nazmi, about the targets uh, of emission. Uh, but then we also look at what we are actually doing. Right? So we know that we, we have a rapid rate of deforestation. That's a big conversation that's happening now. And, and for a fact, even the government doesn't know how much actual forest cover we have. Right? So we have Rimmer Watch, uh, who has postulated that you know, our actual forest cover is well below the 50% average that it's supposed to be. And the NRECC saying uh, that's not validated data. But then you and I, we know about all the deforestation stories that happen almost on a weekly basis for the last 20 years. I mean, if you're a child uh, who, who was born in the, in the 90s, uh, that's, that's the thing that you'll be hearing in the news most often. So that's one part. And then we're still looking at uh, mega hydro, right? So the Ngiri Dam uh, project, uh, that's going to be another mega hydro project, which is going to submerge a huge, huge area. And those are carbon sinks, which have a direct relation to, um, to uh, greenhouse gas emissions or uh, carbon sequestration in, in forests. You know? yep. So are we doing enough? 
uh, I, I for one don't think so. Right. So are we doing enough? Your big question. But also, is there how are there things that are being overlooked in the actions that we're taking? Yes, uh, definitely. So uh, we, we, we have come to terms with a, a number of realities. And, and one is uh, the economic reality. Until we find a way to diversify our economy and move away from our dependence on fossil fuel uh, production as a huge part of our GDP, uh, it's, it's a fact of life. And, you know, it's also a fact of life that we're all using it. You know, whether we're using trains or buses or whatever, uh, we still burn coal as the base, uh, base form of, of energy to power our electricity grid, you know, before supplementing it with, with other forms. Um, there's a target, I think, uh, for, for uh, renewables to be fed into the grid by 2040 at, uh, I think, 40%. Uh, so the data keeps shifting. I don't have it now. But yes, there, there are many areas. And one of the, the key areas that we should uh, look at is uh, the emissions of methane. You know, and so we as Malaysians are food lovers. Uh, we we produce a lot of food waste uh, and uh, these food waste get sent to landfills and landfills produce a lot of uh, methane. It's, it's, uh, the, it's more potent uh, than uh, CO2 uh, as a driver in climate change um, and we can fix that. Right? We can fix that fairly easily. Countries like South Korea have done it uh, really, really well. They have a system in place and they have a target to reduce their food waste down to, uh, to zero you know, by uh, 2030, 2035. Uh, it used to be that they had a lot of food waste because of the type of, of diet they had. Uh, but then using a combination of uh, government will, uh, technology uh, and uh, CSO-driven CSO initiatives, they've managed to reduce 47,000 tons of food waste in six years. You know, and it's not just the the food waste that goes to landfills. It's also the carbon footprint of transporting food waste to the landfill, right? So there's two things that, that we can do, but we don't do. The technologies that their countries have done it really successfully, uh, and all we need to do is adopt it uh, and adapt it for, for our, uh, our country, our culture, uh, and that would be a really good start. Now, for what it's worth, the Natural Resources, Environment and Climate Change Minister, Nick Nazmi Nick Ahmad, has said it will take two to three years or so to develop the National Climate Change Bill. What are your thoughts on this timeline? So on this one, I, I will agree with him. Shortly after he was, uh, he was appointed to office, we, we had a meet with him uh, and he was very clear. And I think it's, it's also been stated in the media that uh, the previous administration had promised uh, a climate change act. But when he got into office and looked at it, there was really nothing there. You know, and so the, the, uh, his ministry has now um, had to start from scratch, uh, which, is, which is a good thing. It's a good thing because, uh, as he rightly mentioned, uh, you, you don't want to have a toothless bill. You know, you don't want to have a climate change act for the sake of having a climate change act, but you want to have a climate change act that is an effective tool for climate adaptation and for climate mitigation. You know, and one key aspect that has to be put in is the just transition to make sure that no one's left behind as we transition our, our fossil fuel economy uh, and as we transition to new ways of doing things, new ways of being Malaysian, um, that 
this act should address all these areas so that it's fair, it's equitable. Uh, it also doesn't uh, damage our economy. And uh, more importantly, it needs to have input, not just from consultants, but it needs to have input from CSOs and people on the ground. Kennedy, so longest, right. Yeah. So if I could just jump in there, I understand that what you're saying is two or three years is a reasonable timeline for the production of a climate change bill that is adequate to our problems. But what can be done in the meantime that wouldn't require a bill? Um, so there, there are a number of, of laws already in place, a number of acts that are already in place. And one thing uh, that I observe that could, could be addressed immediately is the case of open burning. Right, so you see this in your in your taman. You see this in uh, as you're driving on the highway. You see this in the city. Right, all these directly add to the carbon load. The the penalties for it are are high, are really high. It can run into the millions, right? But you see very little enforcement of it. You know, and the reason that the DOE always gives is that they're understaffed, they're under resourced, and and we've said to the to the ministries from, from way back in 2018 uh, to empower uh, activists, uh, to empower local residents, uh, to put them on par with, uh, say, Vela uh, or the volunteer firefighters, right? So that they have the authority to go into an area where open burning is happening and collect evidence that can be used in court. And so suddenly you get someone uh, being fined uh, or being charged and convicted successfully and having five million ringgit. I mean, the number of open burning cases that happen every day, easily, just in Kuala Lumpur alone, will be 10. And if you're, if you're, you're getting 50 million ringgit from successfully charging all these people every day, then you're going to have all the resources you need to combat, to combat open burning. So there are very good laws already in place. Uh, unfortunately, the, the procedures and the policies of the mechanisms are weak, and also there's a, uh, a lack of will on the part of the government to make these changes. We have a couple of minutes left with you. Do you think Malaysia as a country has enough clout to influence the actions of the world's largest polluters? And how would you like to see us participating in regional or international efforts to combat the climate crisis? Um, I think uh, that the Malay uh, altruism, Chirminkan Diri Sindiri, which is hold the mirror up to yourself, is the best way for us to participate. Because there's no point, you know, there's no point for us to go to international forums, bang the table, you know, have strikes, say this, say that. You see it happen every year at the COPs, at all these international symposiums and conferences. And, and what, what actually happens in real life here? Nothing, right? But if you make those changes here yourself, then you become an example of what's possible and you create pathways that others can emulate. Like the case in point that I made of South Korea and how they tackled their, um, their food waste uh, issue. Right? And so they don't have to go to an international symposium and you know do the song and dance, take action locally. And this applies equally to individual Malaysian citizens. You know, so we have the, the, the national nationally determined contributions about what our targets are, what our emissions are currently, and how we're going to re reduce them and stuff like that. Not all of it's government, because it's not government that's producing all this emission. It's us. It's every single Malaysian. You know, and there's simple ways that Malaysian can, can, can tackle climate change, you know, uh, 
they can they can reduce their food wastage. They can compost their food waste. These are two two great area, uh, great ways for them to do it. Uh, we run a program with one of our partners called Kena Bamboo, which is direct climate action, which is planting bamboo as a way to reduce urban heat sinks. You know, so there, there are lots of things that Malaysians themselves, your average Malaysian can do. You can't just rely on the government. You can't just blame the government. We, we are at the moment part of that pollution. And, and it's very easy for us to become part of the solution. Kennedy, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Sharon. That was Kennedy Michael, co-founder and communications coordinator at Gabungan Darurat Iklim Malaysia, talking to us about Malaysia's efforts to combat climate change um, and what we need to do better. And this is coming as the the globe essentially recorded its hottest temperature ever. Um, we are asking you for your thoughts. Do you think Malaysia is ready for climate change? What can we do to prepare better? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free minded. BFM eighty nine point nine. The Business Station. It's 5.39 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sherrod. We started off our show today by talking about the fact that the world's hottest temperature was recorded just a little earlier this week. And we extended that to look at whether Malaysia is ready for this kind of climate change and what we can do to prepare better. You can call us, you can send us a voice note or WhatsApp, you can tweet us. Uh, so we have a couple of messages on this. Ron starts us off saying the... Um, CAGRG of aircon use in Malaysia is 9.9% till 2026. Buildings need to be designed better to reduce this. Uh, they should be adequately insulated. Yeah, so, you know, it seems that there are in fact, some simple solutions. And in a country where, especially in the cities, we use air conditioning a lot. Why don't we institute those uh, simple solutions? I think would be uh, my take on this, though I I don't quite understand the numbers that have been just been quoted. What well, it means when you say simple, right? What are we actually talking about for existing buildings? I think that this tends to become the the issue that it's. I agree, by the way, Ron. I, I think that this is a good suggestion. I do think buildings should be designed better. This, I mean, you could also tie it to a pandemic conversation about public health and how if our buildings were designed better and less reliant on central air conditioning, it would be just better. Um, but I think the difficulties we run into are legion, um, including what happens to existing buildings. Uh, what do we what do we do? How long is the timeline? So I, I think we just need to be careful when we say simple solutions, because even simple ones executed nationwide can be can be difficult. Yeah. So this one has to do with uh, regulations, right? And so the limits not, and uh, Ron has just pointed out that this limit uh, will hold until 2026. So another three years as such. So the question is, should we be changing these regulations uh, in order to kind of um, incentivize the changes though you're absolutely right it's not simple on one level it's just hugely costly to imagine and put into practice a change not only your you know the new building stock coming as one thing yeah. but the old building stock it's the old buildings that i always think about linia meanwhile says i remember in australia during certain hot summer periods they had a total ban on fire so you can't even have a barbecue and all all households and individuals very conscientiously observe this because of the huge threat of forest fires and the subsequent loss of life and properties much of the small open burning i see are individuals burning rubbish or yard waste because there is no systematic municipal collection of rubbish in that location. 
Yeah, very interesting in this regard. Um, I know there are things that we do, like when we uh, cut grass, we put them into plastic bags and that goes into landfills. It doesn't have to. And in fact, it's the cause of a lot of problems. Why in that instance, a very simple issue can't be changed to taking that grass and turning into compost. Mm. And I've been told by people in this field that that is, in fact, a simple solution to this particular problem or practice. I think the comparison to Australia is interesting because you could also draw parallels to somewhere like California. Um, so in other words, places that have really severe issues around drought and therefore fires, and they have things put in place to manage that, whether it is in this case where people are conscientious because of the acknowledgement of danger, uh, they could also be conscientious because of the the stick, the fact that if you aren't, you get fined in big ways. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that there are ways to look at countries that experience extreme weather and think about how to take it from there. Keep those thoughts coming. Um, let us know, do you think Malaysia is ready for climate change? What can we do to prepare better? You can call, you can send a voice note or WhatsApp. You can also tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.